Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Alexandra Kleeman. On her latest novel, Something New Under the Sun. Alexandra Kleeman is the author of Intimations, a short story collection, and the novel You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine, which we spoke about on Little Atoms a few years ago. Her fiction has been published in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Zoetrope, Conjunctions and Guernica, among others. Another writing has appeared in Harper's, The New York Times Magazine, Vogue, Tin House, M Plus One and The Guardian. She is the winner of the Berlin Prize and the Bard Fiction Prize, and is a Rome Prize Fellow in Literature at the American Academy in Rome. And Alex's latest novel, Something New Under the Sun, is what we're going to be talking about today. Alex, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us, first of all, how you would describe this novel. I often describe it as a Hollywood novel at the beginning that collides with a disaster novel and gets swallowed up by it. So um, a lot of the narrative threads that I'm building at the start start to become unraveled by a bigger problem that surfaces in the middle of the book, but has been there all along, as most of our problems um, in the real world are. I want to talk first of all about, well, I, I was going to say our protagonist, Patrick Hamlin. The book is told in the third person, but it switches focus on various characters more closely at, at different times. But in the main, I'd say Patrick is the um, is the main protagonist. So let's tell us first of all who Patrick is. Patrick Hamlin is a writer from the East Coast who's come to Hollywood to participate in some way in the adaptation of one of his novels, a very personal novel called Elsinore Lane into a film. But when he gets there, he finds that this adaptation isn't exactly what he expected. They seem to have turned his book into a horror movie. He's in the position of a PA production assistant rather than someone sort of calling the shots. And actually the bulk of his job when he's there is to ferry around Cassie Carter, this um, troubled starlet who was big on the teen detective TV show when she was younger, but has seen her career sort of decline since then. So this job as a production assistant is basically his payment. He's not really read his contract properly. And this is basically what he's <sighs> getting paid for the um, for the adaptation rights yeah. to his novel. So what sort of things, I mean, in general, because, you know, you sort of have fun with the film industry in the book. What sort of things, not necessarily Patrick, but what a production assistant would be expected to do on a film set? <laughs> 
Well, first of all, you always have to read your contract very carefully. These things are very important. <laughs> but a production assistant, I have many friends who've worked as production assistants, and some of them worked their way up from there, and some sort of exited laterally into other parts of the industry. But you can be asked to do anything. You might be running around getting paper. You might be picking up packages. You might be getting coffee. You might be giving input on something. You might be picking someone up at their house and ferrying them over to the studio for filming. It's one of these jobs where um, when you're starting out, you're expected to pay your dues and you can pay or be made to pay in almost any form. Um, it's a, one of these amorphous amoeboid jobs that can spread into all sorts of strange task zones. And Patrick is doing a version of this and it's especially difficult for him to handle because he's someone who's been used to being in control. You know, when you're sitting in front of a Word document, you may not have that much power overall, but you have all the power there is in a way. Um, it's so, also funny that he's he's a middle-aged man as well. This is obviously yes. <laughs> a job that's an entry-level job into the film industry. Absolutely. And I think like um, a lot of his own sense of aggrievement comes from um, working alongside kids and people who are not used to getting the sort of respect that he believes he's owed. And you mentioned Cassidy Carter, who is the, the <laughs> starlet that's hired to be in this film. Um, tell us something about who she is. Well, Cassie Carter is um, a former child star, teen star, someone who was on a very popular TV show called Cassie Keen Kid Detective, which um, has spawned like a continuing um, and voracious fan base that still talk about the old episodes ad nauseum online and try to come up with theories about what would have happened in the last season if it hadn't been canceled. So she's one of these... Uh, instantly recognizable faces who doesn't appear all that much on screen and, and who's sort of coasting on what she had before. In some ways, like someone like like Lindsay Lohan, who is permanently famous, but who increasingly shows up for you know being involved with a resort in Greece or having a line of pantyhose or something like that, or self-tanner, I think it is, um, rather than anything that she's doing in her capacity as an actress. And when we first, when the novel first starts, our first introduction to Cassidy is an incident where she is, you know, having something of a meltdown in a in a mm. store. Yes, we began with Patrick watching a viral video being shown to him by some of the PAs, and it's a video of Cassie Carter in a drugstore, sort of trying to shoplift a few tampons from a box um, when she gets filmed by a paparazzi who um, starts taunting her. She loses her temper. She starts beating him with a gallon jug of uh, laundry detergent. Um, and it's all captured on film, her being hauled out of the drugstore like a criminal. And, you know, I loved writing this scene. I think I'll read from it at the end. And you can tell like, it's like a dynamic scene. She's full of energy. She's got some sort of lines she won't let other people cross with her, um, which is sort of an inconvenient quality to have as an actress where you're expected to fall into line a lot of the time. And I love writing a poorly behaved female character because in so many ways I am very well behaved and wish I weren't. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us something about her background as well, because she's got this sort of ambivalent relationship, an estranged relationship from her sister. Yes. I mean, um, I thought a lot about, you know, what it is to be a child star. You know, you're 
sort of extracting yourself from the childhood context that most of us have been able to grow up with, the idea or premise that you're a regular girl, like the, the friends and small dramas there, and you're instead, you know, spending most of your free time working, most of your, your professional time pretending to be a normal young girl, you know, and this line between simulation and reality, I think, must collapse in a really interesting way at those times like there's a part later on where Cassie's talking about her first job and she's in a commercial for an antidepressant with a man who has been hired to be her father but they're at a carnival playing the ring toss eating cotton candy and she says you know when you're being filmed doing those things you're actually doing those things too it's actually fun as well but it's just a little bit better because you know it's going to end up on television so both simulating realness and then trying to figure out who you really are when the cameras are off I think are two of the problematics that pull her in opposite directions as a character and that scene as well is is poignant in that she actually ends up being replaced by uh, another girl presumably from a slightly higher (laughs) income bracket Um, but she still suggests that the on-screen relationship with this actor father is still one of the strongest relationships (laughs) in her life (laughs) yeah (laughs) I mean um I feel for her because she lives in sort of the contradictions of our age and in a like position where roles are real and roles are sometimes more real than the real relationships that you have in your supposedly real life, like her relationship with her sister, which is probably the strongest one in her family, but is also, um, you know, a fragile one. Most of her memories of her sister are all at least two years old because they haven't spoken for years. And I just wanted to mention one other thing about talk about one other aspect of Cassidy Carter, and that's her nose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I when people ask, you know, what did you first see of your character? How did you create them? One of the things I knew from the very beginning is she is a person with an incredibly special nose. She's got the best nose in the world, perhaps. And um it's a nose that is so perfect and authentic and real and attractive that people go to the plastic surgeon and re- request one for themselves. And she's finagled the system where Every time someone gets her nose from a plastic surgeon, they have to pay her a royalty. So um, her lifestyle, what remains of it is funded in part by these nose dollars that come in um, every month. (laughs) And I wanted to talk also about, so Patrick's family, while Patrick is in California at the, you know, the low rungs of the film industry, Mm. um, his wife, Alison and daughter Nora, uh, at a, a sort of camp, a retreat, Uh, called the Earthbridge Community in upstate New York. Tell us something about them and why they're there. Yeah, well, in the time preceding the novel, Patrick and Allison have had some problems in their relationship. And Allison's become sort of obsessed with the carbon cost of their lifestyle, the wastefulness of their lifestyle. And it's really depressing her very badly, such that she has something like a breakdown, not all that dissimilar from Cassidy's in a sense, uh, tearing up their front lawn in front of all of the neighbors. So when Patrick leaves for California for this job, she decides it's time to take Nora, their daughter, upstate to this community that is based around the idea that what we're losing in the natural world should be mourned. So every morning they begin with, um, you know, a a morning of mourning, uh, gathered together, listing off the main things that have been lost in the last 24 hours, um, crying for it, 
celebrating the beauty of those things that were lost. And then they go about their day cooking communal meals and gardening and spending time outdoors. And in some ways, it's um, it's kind of the best version of that sort of place that I can think of. But Allison is also a bit uncomfortable there. You know, it's a it's a strange environment. She's still too attached maybe to some things from uh, her life to fit in perfectly with people who've done a better job giving up their earthly needs. And um, one of the main things I wanted to do there too was uh, to position her in a different place, different environment from Patrick's because Patrick is surrounded by wildfires, by desert, by this um, situation with a synthetic form of water that everyone has to drink um, in Southern California because they've run out of regular water. And she's in the opposite place. You know, things are beautiful there. Things are still pristine. She's out in the woods and far upstate. Um, and from there, she's talking to Patrick and trying to wrap her mind around the situation that, that he's in, which sounds surreal to her and sounds strange, but which she understands in some way is happening. And I, I think that this is one of the main emotions that characterizes where we are relative to climate change now. We're sitting in the comfort of our homes, looking out the window at a beautiful day, and we're reading about immense flooding in Louisiana, or we're reading about wildfire in Idaho, the size of New Jersey, that's just scoured that land. And you believe that it's happened, but you don't always have the feeling, the felt experience of knowing that it's happened. You know that there's something there but at the same time, you feel comfortable, you know? And I think one of the big challenges we face is how we can create an imagination that allows us to connect our situation to a crisis situation far away and understand that we are affected by it, even though we don't seem to be. Yeah, and I wanted to sort of follow up on what, what you said about Earthbridge, you writing in the sort of best possible version of that sort of place as you could because it is a nice place and Patrick is obviously worried that his family have ran off to join a cult and you know yes. as, as, a, as an extension as, as the reader uh, start at the beginning start to you know to wonder if this is how things are going to pan out but it's not it's an entirely nice and benign place that they've gone on to but at the same time it seems incredibly self-indulgent that there are these people that are trying to connect to nature and mourning yes. the fact that all around the world Oh, now, today, this morning, this particular species of animal went extinct and they mourn it. But at the same yes. time, they're doing nothing. They're doing Yes, nothing. what does that do to mourn it, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, um, I think that we can maybe solve the problem of cognitive dissonance between, you know, how we live our lives and what we know is going on on a global climatic ecological level. We can reconcile those things on an individual level, but we don't do anything about the situation as it exists out there. So it's really a form of privilege, I think, for Allison and the other people who are there at Earthbridge to be able to just pop themselves out of their lives and go to a place where they can feel better about how they live in the world, even as the world sort of keeps going on around them. And Nora points this out because um, she's sort of a representative of this other generation, like always looking askance at their parents' decisions. And um, you can sense, I hope, that she's imagining something else. So we don't really get to find out what that is. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. 
That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Alexandra Kleeman, and we're talking about her latest novel, Something New Under the Sun. And Alex, the book is set in, I mean, potentially a slightly future California, but also mm. we could say a heightened version of contemporary California, mm. somewhere in between. And the things that are happening ecologically in the book are happening in California right now. So let's talk about what's going on in California right now in terms of the climate. Well, I'm from Colorado. I was born in California and I've spent a lot of time there, lived there sometimes over the course of my life. And the problems are the same across a lot of the West. It's a place that's just congenitally in drought and these droughts are magnified now, more severe. Things are drier than ever, and the threat of wildfire is greater than ever, so that there are these mega fires burning there that get to temperatures beyond what wildfires ever used to get to and are exacerbated by a wide range of conditions. You know, At the same time, for people living in the West, they're relying sometimes on groundwater that's taken eons to build up, or they're relying on rainfall that's increasingly unreliable and unpredictable in this time. So the threat of short is no longer just a threat. For example, in Mendocino County in Northern California, um, they've had so many problems that they're trucking in water from nearby town, you know, um, just to supply their citizens with water for everyday bathing, cooking, really normal things like that. We're not even talking about watering lawns. And recently, the town that they were trucking in water from cut off the supply because they were facing a shortage themselves. So the system is much more fragile than we traditionally think, I think. Some of the solutions that have been proposed, like I spoke to some water experts who in California who are really saying like, well, if it gets too bad, we'll just build the pipeline to the Great Lakes, you know, which sounded like such a crazy sci-fi idea that you would build a pipe from Southern California all the way up to Michigan or so and get your water from there. But it's a moment for thinking of crazy solutions. So my own crazy solution in this novel was a form of synthetic water that you can make right in your own backyard, you know, from hydrogen and oxygen and a little something else <laughs> called um, Watt R. And it's been packaged and bottled so that you can um, 
you know, by the gas station, grocery store, and all of these different uh, sub-brands, like a luxury sub-brand, one for athletes, one that is a little bit stickier so that it coats your mouth and keeps much from evaporating if you're doing like extreme exercise, for example, or in your home, having a huge water pod installed that you can use to shower with. And that water is a slightly different formulation because you want to shower with something slipperier, not stickier. So um, the sort of intense productivization and marketing of water as basically a, a consumer product with all the gradations we expect from our, our things, at least here in America, we're obsessed with branding. Yeah, I, want, I wanted to talk about how you, you sort of look at contradictions of consumerism and capitalism in the book at a time when, again, it's a book about impending climate catastrophe. And mm. this is at the most extreme extent of that, the fact that there is literally water, the thing that we need to keep us alive, mm. is basically just another product in this story. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I see water in this book as sort of the application of an old or existing solution to a new problem. And I think that we see that all the time, that even as a crisis worsens and really becomes something categorically different, we try to do the same thing to it and solve it in the same way. So even though it seems a little outlandish, you know, I think that if there were a way to make a quick and easy switch to a substitute, we might do that. You know, one of the big inspirations for this too, as I was doing research, was the crisis in Flint, Michigan, where uh, Flint, this sort of aging, decaying industrial town that used to be a real hub of economic activity, um, has been losing population and is economically depressed. And the city decided to switch from using a more expensive water source connected to Detroit to using um, their own river, which they were going to redirect and, and treat and run through pipes. But they didn't check to see, you know, both the condition of their pipes and the specifics of this water. So as they ran this water through the old lead pipes that already existed, it started leaching lead into the water and people were noticing a difference. They were noticing a difference in color and the city was telling them all the while, it's fine, it's fine. We think it's easy to swap out one thing for another. When they're out of your favorite brand of laundry detergent, switch over to this other one and maybe you never switch back. That's what companies love, you know. But some things are not exact substitutes. And especially when we're getting into natural resources and matters, where they come from, what exactly they're like and what the consequences of taking them from that particular location are. So I think we make decisions too quickly and with an inadequate amount of observation. The other aspect of the novel in terms of what's going on in California to do with the climate now is that you paint a picture of these characters living in a state of constant wildfires, which are just like fires that are just an ever-present feature mm -hmm. on the horizon as they're going about their daily lives. Yes. You know, when I was a kid, I lived in Los Angeles County in sort of an Asian and Hispanic suburb. And when I would drive home with my parents, I would see fires burning on the side of the highway and everyone just driving on by. Like it becomes a thing you don't even have to crane your neck at. So I drew a lot on my memories of that time when I was writing this book. But when I was finishing my draft, I was in Colorado uh, for about eight or nine months um, during the pandemic. And three of the largest wildfires in Colorado history were burning at the same time then, the first and second largest, for example. Every day, you know, the sun was red. Every day, you check the air quality index to see if it's very high or too high to go for a run, you know. And it's amazing how quickly 
we all normalize to that too, to the constant presence of wildfire smoke all around us because people would simply go out and buy an air purifier or they would drive to a place um, you know, that had a higher elevation where there wasn't as much smoke and then they do their outdoor activities there. We're still in a place where even as this crisis grows to historic proportions, we can find a way to avoid or escape it to some extent and that gives us a sense of manageability. But I don't know... I don't know exactly when the manageable tips over into the unmanageable. I think that it's a more difficult designation to predict than we think. And that once you flip over into the unmanageable, it makes for quite a different experience. It really is a radical disruption of everyday life. This is a book that's concerned with the destruction of habitats, destruction of nature. And, and often there'll be quite long passages where you might introduce mm-hmm. the destruction of, a, you know, or the appearance of a, a fire beetle, for instance, or, you know, the extinction <laughs> of, of another beetle. And then we'll, we'll spend a page or a couple of pages talking about the life cycle of this particular creature. And, and I found those pieces wonderful. Tell us something about <laughs> writing about nature in the book. Oh, thank you. You know, um, a lot of the things I've written, you know, especially my first novel, were very concerned with the manufactured environment and artificiality. And I actually am a person who loves being in nature more than pretty much anything else. And so I really wanted to make a presence for nature in this book and to make a presence for non-human organisms as well. I think that in some sense, it makes sense that our literature is so focused on the human because we are humans and we are so endlessly fascinated by each other and by the world that we've created. But really, life on Earth is so much more than that, you know. And to just decenter the perspective a little and zoom in on um, one of the other forms of life that's adjacent to our own, I think um, was a really important thing to me here in in sharing the space a bit. You know, it's still nothing like um, a real tribute to how much inhuman life there is out there. But in the course of my research, you know, I included some things I already knew about, but also in reading about California, I learned about the fire beetle, for example, which is this amazing insect that can sense the faintest amounts of fire from an incredible distance. They fly hundreds of miles to get to um, a fire that they've sensed, and then they lay their eggs in still smoldering tree trunks. So depend on fire for the completion of their life cycle. But because they're so good at sensing fire and because it's hard to tell the difference sometimes between a real natural fire with trees and in a man-made fire, there's this really funny story about a flock of um, fire beetles, swarm, I suppose, for bugs, descending upon concert goers in an outdoor theater, the Greek theater, um, because they had too many cigarettes lit. <laughs> so imagine these beetles just raining down on people who wanted to see a band play. Sometimes we can forget about the outside world, I think, and how alive it is and how present it is and sort of how much of it there is. Um, But it's moments like that when a swarm of beetles is descending on you that you can no longer forget and you're reminded that we share this space. You mentioned your first novel and I wanted to talk about how that's a novel that was concerned with body image and consumerism among among Mm. other things and and both are themes that crop up in this book as well of course and I wondered how you saw the two novels in relation to each other. Yeah, you know, I I think it could seem pretty different to people. I mean, on the one hand, the first novel is very first person and very, you're very much 
stuck inside one person's head as they're surrounded by the other stranger. And then this one is third person and takes advantage of a lot of the affordances of third person to jump around between perspectives and, and sort of spend time in spaces where there's no one around to narrate except, except our third person eye. But to me, they're very intimately connected because I think they're both about this world we've made for ourselves the rules that govern it, the rules that we all sort of imbibe subconsciously for how our bodies should look and how they should be managed and shaped and sculpted, and the limits of how far they can be managed and shaped and sculpted, because there's something irrepressibly material about the body and, and that its connection to life, we need it as our sort of anchor point to that external world and to the to the world that provides us with the things we need, like food and water. There's like a sort of survival theme or baseline underlying that book. And it's the same too in this new book, I think, because even though it's less about body image, I'd say it's more about the way that the lives we've made, jobs, lifestyle, family, sit upon this ground that is still composed of materiality, uh, necessity in a more basic biological sense, and the way that what we need as bodies can be shaped and, and turned and manipulated to some extent, but only to some extent, because there is still this fact that we need water to survive and a slightly different thing other than water will not suffice. You know, we need the exact thing that we, our bodies were designed to live alongside. To finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit of the novel? Yes, I'm just going to read a little bit from the beginning. You don't really need to know anything here except that Patrick is watching the viral video. On the palm-sized screen, it looks curiously real, like something he's already seen. She slouches in the drugstore aisle, clawing the skin on the back of her hand, sunglasses black and gleaming in the halogen daylight. This is the girl, a bored blonde, her head at once too big and too little for her whittled-down frame. Smaller than life, shorter than expected, not as pretty, torso adrift within a pair of creased track shorts and an oversized black sweatshirt with Gucci spelled out on front in serifed white letters. The footage has a handheld wobble. From time to time, it sinks behind a shelf and you can hear the sound of close breath, the body of the camera holder hovering just out of view. She keeps taking a box off the shelf, putting it back, picking it up again. Against a background of sanitary napkins, pregnancy tests, and adult diapers, she looks aimless, misplaced, like a child rehearsing an adult gesture they've seen but not fully understood. Patrick Hamlin shields his eyes from the California sun and squints down at the miniature face on screen, shrunken behind oversized lenses. Can't help but feel disrespected, seated off to the side of these production kids, half his age but wearing better clothes, slim-limbed youths who picked him up at the airport and then detoured without asking to this noisy poolside bar nestled in the crotch of an overpriced hipster hotel. The potted palms by the bar all have smiles painted on their trunks and sultry, cartoonified eyes made to be photographed and uploaded to the feed. At check-in, bowls of red rubber condoms sit gratis, waiting to be snatched up by smooth-armed men and women, delighted at the novelty of a cock that resembles a balloon animal. Now he's jet-lagged and dehydrated, headachy from drinking a jumbo gin and tonic in a glaring bright, mouth dry and tasting of stale wool as he leans over to watch their video clips on a scuffed-up smartphone, the armrest digging into his soft belly. Plastic glasses litter the tabletop as the kids slurp from twin Bloody Marys as tall as a toy poodle. What is this? Patrick asks as the girl in the video fingers the sealed opening of the little box. What am I seeing? 
You have to start from the beginning to get the full effect, says one of the kids encouragingly. A Hispanic 20-something in a short sleeve button-up patterned with small embroidered horseshoes. Like a horror movie, adds the pale one, holding the phone. His arm drifts toward and away from Patrick randomly, making it difficult to follow the tiny happenings on the tiny screen. You need those shots of the suburbs and hedges and mailboxes to prep for the massacre that comes later. When the violence is unleashed, the viewer can't comfort themselves by thinking it's a neighborhood fundamentally different from their own. They've already swallowed the pill. Massacre? Patrick has no idea what he's supposed to be looking for. The girl on screen is famous, he knows, but he can't imagine why. She has long yellow hair and an overstuffed pout. She could be any teenager at the mall, an expensive mall, riding the escalator up and down in the afternoon stupor, clutching outside shopping bags in both hands that swing slowly in the breeze. In the small, impossibly clear picture, her mouth is set in a stiff line, but somehow he senses that she could burst into tears at any moment. On screen, the girl looks furtively toward the checkout counter, then back down. Silently, she slides a finger under the flap, splits open the little box, wriggles her hand into the aperture in the cardstock. She's peering inside now as she pushes the contents around with the tip of a slender manicured finger. Now the shot is tightening, honing in on the box, which seems to be full of tampons. The girl deftly flies three of them out and pockets them without looking, staring straight out in front of her like she's searching for someone all the way across the room. She's stealing tampons, Patrick asks. Shh, say the kids. Camera lurches into motion as the cameraman steps out from behind the shelves and speaks. Hey, Cassie, what you doing? You gonna take those without paying? His voice is cheerily unfriendly. Smile into the camera. Come on, baby. Cassie looks up, her face soft and innocent and surprised for a moment. Then the features rearrange. What the fuck, growls Cassidy, her grip tightening around the tampon box. You guys take out the maxi pad aisle now? Do you want to hide in my shower and watch me put it in? The cameraman giggles humorlessly. Come on, Cassidy. I don't think your fans would appreciate that kind of language. Give us a Cassie King kid detective salute. Can you do that? Cassidy lets out a weird, strangled sound. She hurls what's in her hand right at the lens and a mess of brightly colored cylinders bursts once like big clumsy confetti as the camera whirls down to the floor and back up again, seeking her face. What it finds looks ferocious. Press delete, cunt, Cassie says, her hand reaching or appropriating that fucking phone. So this is all being shot in a camera phone, Patrick thinks. Incredible resolution. Phones, he thinks are the one thing in the world that always seem to be getting better. So I've been talking to Alexandra Kleeman. We've been talking about her latest novel, Something New Under the Sun, which is out in the UK from 40 State. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. So much fun to talk to you and be on the show. I hope I can come back again someday. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.